live from the heart of Brooklyn. Pod Request is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. With three techno experts, Eric Newman, hi! Chris Grabowski, hello! And Tyler Dinner, hey there! This week's episode, What's in a Name? Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another pull request. My name is Eric Newman, and to the left of me, a few blocks over there, still in Bushwick, is Chris Grabowski. Hi! How are hey, you? Hey, you remember your name this time. I remembered my name, and I remembered your name, and that's the whole show, right? It's the name game. Oh, no. Crap. I forgot your name, um, Tyler. <laughs> Hi. Oh, we were so close. So close. Two out of three. That's a D. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. well, how are you today, Tyler? I'm great, thanks. How you doing? I'm doing. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, I, there's not uh, too much stuff going on. I had a pretty low key weekend. I went to a cool vegan restaurant last night with my girlfriend. That's an oxymoron. You know, we actually went to a vegan restaurant that had decent food, and when I say decent, I mean decent for non vegans. Nice. Hmm. It was like legitimately good food. Just you know, period. It's not good for not having meat. It's not good for being fake meat. It's actually just generally good. Cool. Well, was, Crip, uh, Crip Dog has a hot dog that's, you know, vegan. <laughs> <laughs> if you put enough hot sauce on it, it's good for food in general. Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, but we went to this restaurant called Sacred Chow in, uh, where is it? South of Union Square. Hmm. And I don't know, it was, I liked it. Uh, anyway, and so did and so did my girlfriend, who uh, can't eat meat. So, uh, amongst other things. Anyway, uh, that's all I've got. Uh, Christian, I think you uncovered 534 ways of reloading a web page in JavaScript. Did I? Location, location, location. The three most important things about the internet, and or any any bit of real estate, and. Uh, at a website that uh, this can't be you because it, the domain name starts with PHP. Yeah. PHPIED.com uh, has a location location page. Sorry. I don't know what you're talking about with pointing at me. Oh, I thought I got this from you. I guess not. Yeah. Anyway, if you click on it, it is a link on how to reload the page with JavaScript using the window.location. Actually, if you look at it, use there's location, window.location, self.location, window brackets, in every different way. 534. Wow. They all do exactly the same thing. Wait, reloading are they using self accidentally because it's supposed to be this? That's what it looks like. I think self in global scope just refers to window. I don't think self is defined in global scope. Self refers to window in global scope, Christian. Okay. That's right, and that sound cheering my triumph over Christian's ignorance was our studio audience. Hi, everybody! <laughs> Ah, yes. Yes, it's nice to see you, too. We keep you in a Tupperware container during the week, and we take them out on Sundays just for us. And it is a beautiful Sunday evening. Since it's starting to cool down, it's almost fall, even though it's been fall for almost a month. Is it starting to cool down? I'm feeling pretty toasty today. Yeah, you know, global warming is a bitch. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, let's see. What else do we have to talk about? A lot of stuff. Did you know that Twitter is starting to increase their character limit now that it's not just texting, since the, uh, that was how they arrived at 140 characters in the first place. It's not just texting. Uh, it's, and when I say text, I mean like SMS. Uh, they've expanded their character limit to 280. You can have a double-wide tweet to uh, selected users. Are either of you selected by Twitter to tweet in 280 characters? I don't tweet enough to know. 
Not that I know of. No, neither do I. Uh, yeah, that's about it. It's about it. But if, uh, because they're because they're sitting behind probably some kind of launch darkly flag or just any, shouldn't have, just any sort of flag that is prevent only allowing selected users to receive this update. What? It's a feature flag. It's pretty easy to implement. Yeah, but you know, launch darkly is Facebook definitely uses that. I don't know about Twitter. Anyway, uh, you could download something called Tamper Monkey, and uh, I don't know exactly what that is, but you can get it off of the Chrome Web Store, and it uh, if you and if you visit uh, its GitHub repo and click the raw button, tell Tamp- Tamper Monkey to install the script, and then oh, it's like Grease Monkey. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. It's like, well, I guess because Grease Monkey's already taken, even though it's probably been dead for 10 years, Tamper Monkey does the same thing. It allows you to inject scripts into a website, and then if you inject the script into Twitter, which probably just fakes the feature flag to turn on, then it'll allow you to tweet in 280 so characters. isn't this the same exact thing, though, as opening up your web console? Yeah, but Tamper Monkey, uh, yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's consumery, though. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, just like you don't have to use a graphical operating system when you know how to use a terminal. But you still do. Speak for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. That's what I'm talking about. It gets me every time. Every time. Uh, okay, something that you did find, Chris, is that uh, there's a Twitter bot that tracks edits to Wikipedia from IPs at the U.S. Congress. Half of them are, uh, what's his face, Wiener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really sad what's happening to him. But he walked into it, so mm-hmm. it's not. But uh, Wiener, Brown University first, Wikipedia huh? article, edited, so, edited anonymously from U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, John, John Thune Wikipedia article, edited anonymously from U.S. Senate. Right, that's not just John Thune. Uh <laughs> University of Missouri Wikipedia article edited anonymously from the U.S. House of Representatives, probably a representative from the state of Missouri. Uh, yeah. What wow, else? Missouri. 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 Times are tough. Yep. <laughs> List of Star Wars species, F through J, Wikipedia article edited anonymously from U.S. House of Representatives. <laughs> Somebody who is bored. <laughs> right under that, Akira, 1988 film, Wikipedia article edited anonymously from U.S. House. What? <laughs> wow, they're Carly really Ray Jepsen. Who is that? Lou, Musician Lou- of sorts. Uh, oh. Uh, Louis Gomert. Anyway, there's a lot of people. Ottoman Empire, Wikipedia article anonymously edited by U.S. House. Okay. That's just an interesting one. Metal Gear. <laughs> Trotskyism. Anyway. Well, well li- li- neoliberalism edited from the U.S. Congress? Come on. That's like, oh, that's, that's really bad because they're inventing neoliberalism at the U.S. Congress and they're, they're changing what it is. Oh, anyway, next. <laughs> it's political inception. <laughs> you oh, can read that list. And it's time. political vertical integration. Oh, wow. Tyler, that's brilliant. Because I mean, it's revisionist political is history that they're modifying on the fly, but at least it's being tracked by Twitter. My dude is writing the history book on himself. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, our, uh, let's see, there's a couple things that we uh, didn't touch on on our, our, uh, on our two-parter on cryptocurrency uh, because of a lack of time, even though we had two whole episodes about it. Don't get me started. Uh, one thing that we wanted to talk about, we didn't really get a chance to discuss, is initial coin 
offerings, ICOs, to be compared with when a company goes public on a stock exchange, an IPO, an initial public offering. Christian, what is the difference between an IPO and an ICO? Uh, this is news to me. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm surprised you thought I'd know. I wish you had something to read. Anyway, what happens is a lot of startups these days, when they're going to pitch to investors, create a digital currency. And then that kind of... And with the blockchain democratization of whatever it is that we unearthed last week, uh, even though that kind of makes oh, it sound so like it's it actually getting the coin out into the public. But it's the thing is, is that it's creating a digital currency and then selling them. Uh, and then it says here in this article, sometimes raising tens of millions of dollars in a matter of minutes. And it's not a pitch to invest in the currency. It's a pitch that these... Uh, uh, that it's a it's a way that these people are raising money in terms of just startups mm -hmm. and, and, and venture capital. I, mean, I think you know the idea of a single coin makes sense, but the idea of hey, there's a bunch of coins is really stupid. Yeah, take a look at this. Last month, a small team of computer engineers in Lithuania raised 14 million dollars U.S. in 45 minutes by selling a coin known as Mysterium that is intended to give access to an encrypted online data service that is still being built. Wait, is Mysterium also known as Kenny Coin? I didn't watch South Park. Yeah, this isn't even That's a stress, but I appreciate it. Anyway, um, the next day, a group of coders in the Bay Area pulled in $35 million U.S. under 30 seconds of online fundraising. The coders were offering basic attention tokens, excuse me, which will one day work on a new kind of ad-free web browser that we'll never see because they already made their money. Hmm. Later... A team in Switzerland raised $100 million U.S. for a coin that will be used on an online chat program that has not been released. So what's happening is these people have a lousy idea for a service. They have a lousy idea for an app. And then they say, but we're going to use cryptocurrency. Hmm. And that actually allows them to get investors. Are we in a bubble? Of cryptocurrency? Yes. 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 I think when it gets that, to that, this that level... Are, I mean... The, the level, of, regardless of what level of popularity, the level of stupidity involved. Yeah, no, there's a di there's a difference between <laughs> this is beyond po stupid. Uh, popular mainstream popular and raising thirty five million dollars in thirty seconds because they got these people sold on a cryptocurrency that probably won't exist in six weeks. It, it's just so dumb, my God. There is a gold rush mentality in the sector right now, and many people are doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Yep. It's the new Ponzi scheme. Yes, and you'll hear it next. Oh, I can actually use the... Uh, you'll hear it next on the next American Greed. Mess up that timing. You can hear it on the next American Greed. Okay. It's actually a good show. You should watch it. But none of us have televisions, and none of us have televisions that have cable, so we can't. I mean, What's a television, sling. Grandpa? It's like a computer monitor that plugs into that ha plugs into the wall instead of a computer. That actually, doesn't plug that into the wall. It plugs into a cable box that plugs into the wall. Nope. Boom. Nope. Yes. Why is Sorry, that was before Billy digital cable. All the tech stuff. Back in my day, we had two cable outlets for one television. Which is true. Oh. Actually, when I lived in Pittsburgh, we had double outlet cable outlets, and I asked why, and they said that Pittsburgh was one of the first cities to develop cable television in the 70s, and when you did, the bandwidth over coax wasn't high enough so you could use one cable, so you needed two of them. Hmm. Yeah. 
Talk, and those didn't plug into... Actually, I think, yeah, you're right. Those did plug into a cable box, because how else mm-hmm. would you get that to go into your antenna TV? Mm-hmm. Well, there was a brief period of time where you didn't need a cable box. From, like, the, the 90s. Interesting. I don't remember that, though. The, the, you know, between, like, 1988 and 2001... You, like, didn't need a cable box. You just oh, plug for, a TV. basic TV. That's always been true. Like, and that's cable. Been tr- that's been true since uh, the cable companies decided that, like, channels 1 through 7 are... No, like, I meant regular cable. Basic cable. Yeah. And, and everything not HBO. No, basic cable is, like, channels 1 through 7. No, that's local TV. Anyway. Well, also, HBO is not TV, so... There you go. Yeah, it, but, it, yeah it's, HBO... mo- it's mostly porn with <laughs> dragons. Yeah, and, and, and there is, by the way, speaking of grandpa, there is one thing that kids today will never see, and that's scrambled pornography. Think about that. Uh, you're flipping through the channels, you get to, like, channel 88, channel 90. You're like, what is this? And you just see this wave of colors. I mean, that's it's, not it's, what I think about. I think about... Uh, God's trying to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> this very encrypted, this the, like, badly obfuscated signal, analog obfuscation. I mean, I keep on thinking about kids missing out on public access. Well, they have Tumblr for that. Anyway, <laughs> what? Uh, something oh, else about, about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> something else about Bitcoin is that uh, a, a wealth management company, a big wealth management Fidelity. company, is actually actively mining them. Oh, so that's Fidelity. what they're using my IRA for. Exactly. It turns out Fidelity has been mining cryptocurrency for three years, using their own computers to harvest digital currencies from Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's genius. Think of it as an experiment. The real reason we began mining, and still do, is to learn how the network works, how consensus works, how difficulty level works. Uh, last month, J.P. Morgan began handling customer orders for Bitcoin-related financial instruments. Goldman Sachs has stoked rumors it might open a trading desk dedicated to digital currencies as well. Uh, Fidelity also partnered with Coinbase in a very popular online crypto exchange. Uh, and this way, you can actually... Uh, what is it? You can You can... In your Fidelity account, use Coinbase to exchange cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway. What? No, I'm just trying to keep it moving. Okay. Well, you can also talk about it. You don't have to... You're not on the show listening to the show, Christian. Yeah, We're on the it, show doing the show. It's a very matter-of-fact thing, though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here's something... Uh, let me talk about all the... Uh, yeah. Uh, here's something about our local New York minute... Our new, that's what we should call it. Our New York Minute. It'd be great. You, you keep, it, keep it to a minute. <laughs> so what was that? <laughs> Good luck with that. It's Eric we're talking about. <laughs> what was that? What did, bo- did both of you say the same thing that I didn't hear at the same time? I said, now you got to keep it to a minute then. And I said, Good what luck did Christian with that. say? Ah. Oh. It was good. Same page. All right, anyway, time me. The New York Police Department is asking for your help identifying a man who passed himself off as a messenger and sold $58,000 worth of iPhone 7Ss at an Apple store in Chelsea. That's it. That's it. I I love the video of the guy they caught on security camera, too. Well, this is what happens when when your model of business allows you to just leave with the products, and that's what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Honestly, Apple has a gajillion dollars, so the only thing that... I would say is I give that guy a high five. Here's a question. Why are they iPhone 7Ss? Why aren't they iPhone 8s? Why aren't they iPhone Xs? Because those are the ones that aren't being watched as closely. If, I mean, and $58,000 outside, outside iPhone 7s. Outside of the middle class. Hack them too. I, just, I should say below the middle class, everything uh, from like an, an iPhone 7 will sell like hotcakes. 
Not now. Yes, not absolutely. when people are waiting for the S Who or the 10. Who anymore? Not everybody has that kind of money, though, is what I'm saying. People, okay. yeah, people uh, specifically in the Bronx, will buy these phones, even if they're stolen, very commonly, it turns out. There's a huge market also on eBay yeah, you're right. for stolen phones. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Also, Craigslist needs phones. It's how they get uh, them. Yeah, it's true. And burner well, phones, Well, since the Obama course. phone program is over, you got to do something, I guess. Anyway, uh... Well, it's Christian, because it's Sunday night, that means it's time for our GitHub Issues of the Week. Our first GitHub Issue of the Week comes to us from our favorite JavaScript framework ever, React. Async component will receive props to allow state update. Uh, let's see. Uh, we're reading the wrong thing. Uh, there's a feature request for an asynchronous version of the standard React lifecycle method. Component will receive props. Mm-hmm. And uh, why does this need to be asynchronous? Uh, you're the one who's most familiar with React, so I was curious. Your I know, and that's and yeah. as someone who's familiar with React, I have you're, to ask: Why do you need this to be asynchronous? The whole point of these lifecycle methods is that they're synchronous. Wouldn't that I mean, va- invalidate the lifecycle if you take it out of the I, synchronicity? Well, this is like using an async await type thing. So uh, with this... No, this what I'm saying like, is you could have other life cycle events. So There's an indeterminate amount they, of time. They give an example in the pull request, or the issue rather, and what they're doing is they're doing an HTTP request, and then the idea is there's new props being set on the, after that uh, um, HTTP request, it seems. Or Oh, so you need to... I no, actually, I stand corrected. They are... I don't understand why it needs to be async other than they want the function to be async to do await calls. Yeah, no, I get it. This set state post title, a wait fetch. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, So what they want to do is they want to make an asynchronous request that the response from that request sets the state of the property. This is when they should use Redux. I mean, maybe, maybe not. No, no, because the lifecycle with Redux is meant... To have these kind of, I mean, you you, for, for you sure. send a signal out to Redux, it does the fetch. When it re, when the response returns, it sends a signal back to React. React remounts the pro, the component with the new state and properties that come from Redux. So I would say that the there's two things. I would say that this is a great use for Redux. And if you don't want to use Redux, my only concern is making these lifecycle methods asynchronous is defeats the purpose of having them be lifecycle methods. Well, you're not making the actual lifecycle method. Method asynchronous. You're making the the code within there being asynchronous. Async await is kind of like uh, syntactic sugar around promises to basically make it look like you want to write synchronous code. Uh, so it's uh, so what? It, no, but because uh, all, it's all, async all says await the does, function is asynchronous. No, but it's, 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 I guess the only it's await that is the asynchronous. It, it, it does imply there's an async call in there. So in order for you to be able to do something right afterwards that is synchronous, you need to understand that there is something in there because all async well, will, uh, the await part says. For the rest of the code that's within this function, actually put it in a dot then of a promise. Right, right, right. So okay, and then okay. So following that example, if you put this dot set state in the result of a promise that happened after the other lifecycle methods had occurred, then this would invalidate the lifecycle. There's an indetermined amount of time between the request and the response. That's the problem. Whereas this lifecycle stuff just keeps ticking. So I would say that if you want to do the, have this behavior, it's a great use for Redux. Hmm. Anyway, that's me. There are millions of ways to skin the cat, uh, even though PETA probably doesn't like that verbiage. And that's what, the, what, what I would. That's what I would say. Hmm. I like anyway, it. Uh, moving on to our next. 
GitHub issue of the week. And I have to say, of this show, this might be my favorite part with the jingles. Uh, our next GitHub issue of the week comes to us from Console by HashiCorp. Console started as a key value store similar to etcd and then has uh, evolved into a general distributed consensus program, including distributed config, DNS, service discovery, and health checks. Mm -hmm. And so the issue is that there's a TTL on these particular health checks in this case. And uh, when you restart console, their uh, actual TTL... uh, um, interval is not guaranteed because you restarted Console, it. C-O-N-S-U-L. Yes. What's a TTL? Time, Time to, to live. live. As in, this check... So in the, in the case of a, che- of a health check, it'll be this check exists for this amount of time, and I can either re-up that health check, or it, or it will go away after a while. Nice. And the issue is, if you restart console, and there happens to be a, a, a TTL that existed, it'll just start at the back uh, at the beginning of its TTL again. Ah, that's not good. Yep. So there's a few ways they could approach this. Uh, there hasn't been any comments on the issue yet, but uh, from my knowledge of console, they could either do something where they just uh, store the state to disk, because they already do write a few things to disk, but that won't scale well, particularly if you have a bunch of health checks. Uh, the other thing you can do, though, is distribute that TTL state in, in your entire... Uh, so console has a, a concept of your WAN cluster and your WAN cluster, the WAN being multiple data centers and the LAN being a single data center. And you can distribute the, the, that state of where the TTL was at within the entire uh, LAN cluster. So that way, when your console comes back online, it just says, okay, I was at this point with my TTL. I'm just going to continue. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I have much less to say about this GitHub issue, Christian. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I picked uh, a little something for everyone this week. You did. So, uh... And you talked about the solutions, and anything else? Uh, not particular. It's an interesting. TTLs are a generally a difficult problem in computer science, but uh, they... It's, a, it's asking for a race condition, basically. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on. Our next GitHub issue of the week comes to us from your favorite library, perhaps, service, Kubernetes? Oh, no, you're skipping over one. I skip over one? Yeah. Oh, I did. You know why? Ah, it explains why... It looked like it was out of order, but it wasn't. Zero based arrays in Google Docs. Anyway. <laughs> uh, hold on one second. I just did the stupid thing of sit- stepping on my headphones. I do this once a week. Okay. There we go. Our next GitHub issue of the week comes to us from... This is something for everybody. You're right, Christian. Mm-hmm. Rails. Puma, not the shoe, slash Rails, locks up when performing an HTTP request to self. Oh. Uh... Uh, when using a Puma application server, or when using the Puma application server with Rails, the process will hit a deadlock. What's the official definition of a deadlock? So a deadlock is when uh, either a uh, two threads are trying to access the same resource and neither of them are getting it, or the same thread is locking on itself. Gotcha. And it just will not go beyond this lock. And it sounds like what they're doing is... They're only using one thread, which, uh, but then they're also saying it's working with twenty thread. It's the same issue with twenty threads, and uh, twenty worker processes, which is a crap ton of processes actually when you think about it, because that's basically four hundred uh, threads. But the issue is actually uh, partially. In, it's basically the, the the overarching issue is this is a bad idea, but 
to re- uh, send a request to yourself. But uh, the way... Well, I mean, sometimes you have to request something from yourself, but is it just... I mean, you, a- you really shouldn't. You should be able to get it in memory. Uh, hold on. You can forward hold a request. On. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, no, there was something. There was something that I was trying to request as a JSON file from the same domain. What was it? Anyway, it was, I was using uh, I was using Create React App. Actually, Create React App has an well, issue. Well, that's a front with, end, right? It is, but I was still making a request to myself. Yeah, but um, this is on the server side. The server making a request to itself. Oh, that is, yeah, why? I, I, I don't know why. I mean, unless but, it's at, like, a different port or maybe the network traffic, the network transaction is better, some reason, I don't know. So this does point out, though, a fundamental, fundamental issue with the whole uh, fork or thread uh, uh, design for web, uh, web servers, where it's just, hey, create a new thread or a new or, or a new uh, uh, process, which can really uh, do some. Uh, uh, it, it's pretty heavy on the resources. But aside from that, there's no there is no guarantee you'll always hit a unique thread if you are making a request yourself. So you can still hit that. I'm on the same thread as uh, that's making the request, and it's the one getting the new request. So it's going to be like, hey, I'm blocking on this request coming back. And gotcha. I can't answer that request. Okay. Tyler, have you used Puma as a Rails person? Um, it's in my stack at work. I haven't personally had to mess with it much. It's not something that we have had to change pretty much in the entire time that I've been there. What do you really use Puma for? Deploying and setting up, whatnot. Like, like Jenkins almost? No. Uh, so what Puma is, it's called an app server. Think of it like, uh, uh, like what uh, Apache does for PHP. Where it just spawns okay. a bunch of workers to uh, enter this because Rails is still executing in a single thread, mm-hmm. but then Puma creates a bunch of these threads and uh, handles the passing the request to each particular thread. Ah, gotcha. Yep. Okay, uh, moving on. Our last GitHub issue of the week. Our last GitHub issue of the week comes to us from Christian's favorite service slash library, Kubernetes. That's a love-hate relationship. Namespace.service.cluster.local is duplicated. Uh, uh, Kubernetes, as you know, Christian, as all of us have talked about many times, it's an orchestration framework, which means what? It uh, is a series of processes and services that uh, together will orchestrate your your, uh, services so that way, uh, it'll ensure that uh, your services are running. Uh, it'll handle service discovery. It'll handle load balancing. Uh, these days, it'll uh, even hook up into your cl- uh, your cloud environment and just handle server creation, uh, hooking into the uh, uh, cloud load balancer. Uh, these days, it's just like automate things. Is uh, gotcha. What it's become. It used to just be, hey, I've got this particular process. I want to ensure it runs. I don't care where it runs, but it needs to be scheduled somewhere. But how is that different from something like Ansible, which does Ansible is a series similar. of scripts that w- will uh, configure things, and then uh, you can say that it's also set to run, but you're still pointing it at specific servers. You're doing things like like you, with Ansible, you care where things run. With Kubernetes, gotcha. uh, you don't care where it runs; it's just running, and that's all you need to know. Gotcha. Now, does Kubernetes as a uh, a cluster does that supply DNS on its own to the cluster? Uh, as of the last like six, seven months, it does have a DNS service that runs like you would your own services. 
Okay. And what that does is it, it's uh, using uh, etcd as the data store to say that uh, basically it's a very stripped down DNS server. So it'll serve A records and SRV records as well as NS records and so was. But, cool. And we'll talk about what those records mean in a minute. Yeah. Or a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And Cool. And so, so what's okay? So Kubernetes has a DNS server, which is great because our episode today is about DNS. And what's Spoiler the alert. problem? So the pro- uh, it's, the problem is actually more so uh, that the person who created the issue didn't really fully understand what an SVC record is or SRV, which is uh, what I've seen it as both SRV and SVC. Uh, what it is is a record to point to a specific service. So it's like an A record, but you also include the port. Oh. That's kind of cool. Yep. Uh, do you think that this will s- replace A records in the future? No. Uh, it's supposed to work alongside it. Uh, traditionally, you're using uh, SVC or SRV. Uh, I always get too mixed up, to be honest. But uh, that that is there. Ah, for- no. SRV. You're right. SRV is the one that is the host and the port name. And SVC uh, is not on Wikipedia. So it's an SRV record then, and they're just saying SVC in the issue. That's what's tripping me up. Okay. Oh, that okay. Yeah. So All it's right. the bad name for the DNS record. Yeah, it is an SRV record, <laughs> which uh, so it won't replace an A record though, because A records are meant to be public, while an SRV record is more traditionally uh, uh, the supposed use is for internal use. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all right. So the problem is what. The problem is uh, that the user doesn't understand how an SRV record works, which the idea is you do have multiple uh, instances of that record. So that way you can actually uh, do a DNS load balance across that service. So you say you have uh, that service running on uh, uh, machine A, machine B, and machine C. And mm-hmm. uh, like an MX record, SRV records have a priority. So you can say I want uh, uh, machine A is a really uh, built-up server. It's got a uh, crap ton of CPU and memory. I want bulk of the requests to go there, but every once in a while, send a few to B and C. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And the solution is, there's no solution because this person, it was operator error, basically. Okay. Great. Well, after we do our GitHub issues, of course, it's time for Tyler's Plus Ones of the Week. Our pull request plus ones are where we send out well wishes and acknowledgments of awesomeness to people and other organizations. Who's our first plus one this week, Tyler? Number one this week goes out to Magically. Uh, I really, I really have a hard time hearing you. I'm sorry. Uh, no worries. Magically, uh, magically. magically. <laughs> yeah, Magically gets our plus one for seeking up to one billion dollars in their next funding round. Um, wow. Yeah, they're looking for an epic amount of funding, um, and they deserve our plus one because regardless of what they do or ever do, uh, it's pretty damn impressive in respect to that. Um, what do Magically do? They are VRAR, something about actually utilizing your actual eyes to do AR and oh. make things appear that aren't actually there. That's pretty cool. Seems pretty impressive, but they've been very secretive about it. No one knows, so it's possible that... I mean, it's probably very proprietary. Yeah, and it's uh, maybe conspiracy theory. Maybe there's a giant cover-up for, uh, I don't know, like Scientology money or something. I don't don't know. Maybe they're just making the next uh, not-hot-dog app. Ooh, 
not hot dogs. So I got to stop this. I noticed that it said the Plantation Florida Virtual Reality Startup. What? <laughs> Tyler. What? Come on. From it's South a TechCrunch South- link. That's uh, that's on them. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, I used to. I, I lived for a while in Plantation, Florida. Anyway. Oh, it's an actual town. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a town in the contiguous suburbia of Florida. South well, so Florida. that's not offensive. It is actually. Anyway, uh, go on. No, I mean the town name is offensive. Yeah, but. <laughs> oh, the town name is offensive. I didn't know. That was the word plantation offensive, though. It literally just means a large in the south. Farm. In the south. Yeah, but this correlation and co- okay, correlation I, does not signify causation. But I understand what the, you're trying to correlate and, right, to. And the evidence of absence is not the absence of evidence. Those are two. Uh, I, I understand what you're trying to correlate it to, but a plantation literally just means a large farm. You can't. Uh, Canada is removing the word chief from all of their titles because uh, it might anger indigenous populations. So I'll I get think indigenous that all maybe I want. we should re. Maybe we should rethink the use of plantation. Maybe we should rethink the fact that our presidential song is called "Hail to the Chief." <laughs> Well, that's, you know, I, I said Canada was doing that, not us. We don't care. Oh, anyway. yeah, we're going to say Merry Christmas now. Oh, that's right. We better. And, you know, if you say Happy Hanukkah like me, you might as well just get on a boat right back to Israel. Yeah, those, anyway. those Starbucks cups better year-round say Merry Christmas. Yeah. It's Christmas somewhere. <laughs> don't you know how time zones work? Talk about, talk about, like, a theme cruise idea. I think that would be a fantastic theme cruise idea. Like, every day it's Christmas. <laughs> and then you cross the international date lines. like those New Year's Eve fl- uh, uh, cruises. I, I, can think of, I can think of something rather off-color to say about that. <laughs> I want to hear... We, 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 you know, we, wait, wait, we, wait, 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 wait. We're right on that line. Well, Maybe we shouldn't. Actually, Eric, I think you're the one who can decide if it's okay or not. So, Well, by the time it comes out of your mouth, Christian, it's going to be too late. So, <laughs> Well, it's we couldn't say no Jews, but, uh, it, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been better without that comment. Anyway, okay, Tyler, back to your <laughs> plus ones of the week. All right. Okay, the next no. plus one goes to a show that I don't watch anymore for some reason. I haven't watched it. It's not that I don't watch it. It is, of course, Tyler. It's it's South Park. South Park. Watch it, but he's been lazy lately. <laughs> right. Eric has no spoil. He had no story. I can't even get these references. I'm not, I'm not uh, watching the show. It's been like four days since the episode aired, Eric. Where oh, my been? God. I'm four uh, days behind four weeks of episodes I haven't seen. Yep. No excuses. Yeah. Anyway, South Park this week took a uh, has plot focused around a scathing look at Mark Zuckerberg and the way Facebook has handled the fake news crisis. In an act of what they usually do best, best South Park used satire to display an incredible meta look on the abilities which Facebook has given to the public and the inaction that they have taken in light of the massive abuse of said abilities. Without spoiling too much of the episode, the show gives the Facebook abuser a voice to inform the people how dangerous the platform can actually be. And at one point, the antagonist explains uh, that... The uh, explains the, the common abuse practice that Facebook allows. And uh, I make Facebook for I make money from Facebook for my fake content in order to pay Facebook to promote my <laughs> fake stories. Uh, it's a vicious cycle that the platform allows. Comments, guys. Well, they they also pointed out too that Netflix will pick up literally everything. <laughs> they did. But you know what? There's no South Park on Netflix. Yeah, there is. Ooh. It was. No, there's not. No, it is. Yeah, yeah it is. Look. Oh. Never mind. I was wrong. Okay. Let's move on. Your next plus one goes to... The final one goes to science. Science. 
Science this week found half the universe is missing matter. See, I knew we'd find it. <laughs> it was in our closet. So oh, yeah, it was, under, it, was, it was in that other room. It was in the basement. It was, it was in the, the pants we wore last night. Uh, <laughs> no, we never looked. Um, well, so... If dark matter has taught us anything, it's that there's a ton of missing matter in the universe, and we think we've found about half of it now uh, in something called baryons, which is basically a giant web of some matter that connects all the giant galaxies in our whole universe. Huh. Yeah. I didn't hear that on Big Bang Theory. (laughs) Sheldon doesn't even know about it yet, but if you Google, uh, you can see a cool image along with the article that kind of... It's a, just a rendering of how it might look uh, with the universe as a cube and with, like, a web right of gas around all the galaxies. It's yeah, cool. yeah. I know what you're talking about. That's interesting. Um, well, I'm glad that science continues to do what science does and find the problems in the things that it finds. Yeah, except for that pesky global warming that it thinks it found. Well, there's also the thing that science, <laughs> that politics does with science, where they change what science says to meet their mean. Uh, yeah, meet their ends. <laughs> What? It's not like politicians can, like, rewrite the history book on themselves. It's not like <laughs> most of... Says the Twitter bot. <laughs> that was good. I didn't even... Wow. Yeah, exactly, Tyler. It's not it's like most circle. of Congress can write their own history. Uh, it's not like most of Congress is run by people that go, well, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm going to make a law about it. <laughs> I'm not an expert. I, I might not be an expert uh, of one of your big city experts on medicine, but I don't think women need abortions. Well, maybe you should talk to some. See what happens. Anyway, too much politics for this show. <coughs> Let's move on uh, to something that might interest both of you guys, and I do say guys. That d- domain name is so confusing, by the way, on the link. <laughs> Yeah, the, well, the hacker uh, news. Well, Pornhub. Sounds fake. Yeah. You want to join in with the audience, Christian? I, I did. Pornhub. <laughs> okay. Uh, Pornhub launched its bug bounty program two months ago, as many software services Oh, shit, guys. Do. Let's get on that. <laughs> uh, and people found a new video called PHP F's 10 million people at once. <laughs> oh uh, man, that's good. They were making sure the gangbang category was working right. <laughs> wow. Alright, alright, alright. Settle down, settle down, everyone. Yes, uh there's a problem with uh PHP's garbage collection algorithm when it interacts with other PHP objects. What is this them reference counting? Uh, yeah, it is reference counting. Huh. One of those PHP unserialized... Uh, one of those is PHP's unserialized function, which I use a lot, uh, on a website that handles data uploaded by users, like Hot Pictures. And uh, so they have two paths, like if you upload an album or if you upload a photo. And then you can uh, trigger this flaw because data is unserialized from the post... From the HTTP post, uh, it's a zero-day flaw, and it let the researchers reveal the address of the server's post data, allowing them to craft a malicious payload and thereby exposing or executing rogue code on Pornhub's server. I like how they. Had Why the did you say hot pictures? It's in it's in well, it's in the text he's reading. I, I like uh, how they had to censor the URL so it didn't link back to. But the they still website. have the image. Well, you know why that is. So, it's because the then. Yeah, exactly. And this this way, the website doesn't get flagged as pornography. Because if you have uh, more porn, look, look at the. Did you see the author's name? 
It's Wang. Ah, Wang Wei. <laughs> Appropriate. It's funny. This guy getting paid to look at Pornhub all day. It only- no, it's it's a zero day vulnerability. Right? That's the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the hack also granted a nice view of Pornhub's Etsy password file. Oh, that is... Mm. No. Uh, it's a zero-day vulnerability in PHP that affects all versions after 5.3, including the v- version that I'm running on my website right now. So go hack me. Don't. Actually, no. P- please. Get him! Don't. Oh, crap. That implicates <laughs> me. Don't Don't hack him. Don't hack <laughs> That actually matters. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. send you guys ransomware. Uh, don't, don't hack me. Um, please, even though I, I, I have paid, I, I, I opted for the extra security on my server. It's hosted in Bulgaria. I don't want to say try it. Don't try it. I'm going to try it. And don't if try I, it. If I can get it to work, I'm going to make you guys do all my laundry and chores for a month. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, oh, wow. I'm Well, <laughs> oh, you're talking about the old hosting? Or, oh, no, your website. No, no, pneumonium.com. Oh, okay. I'm, now, well, now you've made it ten times worse. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I know, uh, I'm pretty sure I know Redacted.com. what that security is, because you do have, uh, like, uh, a rate limit that's in front of your website that is uh, pretty easy to get around, but still annoying. How do you know that? Because you were trying to hack my website, Christian? Do I need to call the cops? No, I was just sending a crap ton of traffic. I, it here. sounds like you were trying to figure <laughs> I, I, out, I sent, do some pen testing on pneumonium.com, Christian. I sent uh, 25 million concurrent requests at it. <laughs> oh, and that is a denial of service. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first... denial of service, I'll have you know. Oh, oh, it is. So you didn't even send all of those yourself. It's, it's, so it started as a DOS attack because you you, you were, uh, but you, I found the rate limit. So I was just like, oh, let me spin up five servers and do the same thing. How did you find the rate limit? Because it just errored after a while. Yeah, but it was sending back the rate limit status of like I think it's like four or something too many requests. Oh, yeah. Hey, Eric. What? What's Microsoft Windows' favorite sitcom from the 90s? Well, Dawson's gonna... Creek. I don't get it. I don't get that one. What? Dawson's Creek? Doss? Give me a give me laugh track. <laughs> <laughs> Just give it. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it, no, there's a show called Crashing that's on right now. See, that would no, have been no, funny, you know, Tyler. You know what's a uh, Windows favorite, why do they, favorite why, show? Why do they never run Windows on airplanes? That's the joke. Yeah. Anyway. No, snakes. even better. Even better. Snakes Windows actual play. favorite show? Hung. <laughs> it wasn't even that funny, but I just laughed. Uh, wait, wait. Let's keep this going. Oh, you know what? <laughs> now I got it. I'm sorry. I laughed for the wrong reason, and now I got it, and it's not as funny. But Ooh, oh, no. Bit. Windows favorite show is Outsourced. <laughs> yes. Yes. I totally forgot about this show. <laughs> All right, Tyler wins it with that one. And with that quick quip, it's time for our recurring segments that don't have theme music, as I have an anticlimax here. Um, <laughs> After Pornhub. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, man. That was bad. Uh, well, after Pornhub, there is. Um, we need a cigarette. <laughs> There is one thing to talk about. Our big exploit of this week comes from iOS. No surprise, as we've been giving Apple a lot of crap lately. Uh, it's called Steal Password. Uh, the Apple, the iOS API allows you to create a dialogue window that perfectly emulates the iTunes uh, authentication dialogue to download stuff from the Apple iTunes Store. Hey. To give you an example... Hmm. You can create a dialog box that says, as the title, sign in to the iTunes store. To continue, enter the password for your Apple ID, and then it lists your Apple ID. Password box, cancel button, sign in button. 
instead of actually connecting to the iTunes store, like you think it would whenever you see that dialog box, it actually just sends your password to an attacker. Hmm. Sweet. And you can see in this article from KrausFX, uh, the, there's the official pop-up right next to the phishing pop-up. They look identical. Yeah, it's a tough one to defend against, too. I don't know what to do, other than Apple needs to change the way that system-generated dialogues are presented. Mm -hmm. And this is why Johnny Ives' knighthood needs to be taken away. How is he a knight of design if he couldn't figure this gem out? All right. Well, I'm sorry. I'm so adamant about this because I just... It's just worse and worse and worse yeah. every week. Give Eric his job. Then he'll bring back the laptops with the colored things on them. Yeah. That's right, I would. I'll make a clear <laughs> one. Per all yeah, clear. Yeah, give me a clear one. Just uh, like that clear Game Boy from 1995. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Not the, the, I, had, I, I missed sauce. out on the clear one. I had the, uh, the uh, purple translucent Game Boy color, but... You remember this? There was a I really had that one too. Yeah, oh, but there was a real clear Game original Game Boy. Oh yeah, I remember that. That's what they need to make the next MacBook Pro out of. Screw aluminium. Yeah. I mean, I know a plastic computer is not going to be that, so we'll figure it out. Anyway, anyway, <clears throat> anyway. Uh, that was our big exploit of the week. After which, of course, it's time for our favorite topic to talk about. It's Theresa May murders the internet. And she's trying yet again this week. Uh, let's see. Uh, the UK government has announced proposals for a levy on technology firms to, quote, raise awareness and counter internet harm. What does that mean? Uh, uh, it means taxing tech firms for being tech. Yes. That's about it. It's like a very vague way of, of defining a way that they can get fined for BS that the UK and EU governments dream up. I hate this. Every, every few weeks, it's another, thing for, it's another rule from Europe about how American technology companies can't do what they want because of their regulations. I mean, Even Europe's they do really good at making up things for Facebook to pay them money for. Yeah. Because they need money because so many of the, of the countries of the EU are broke. Well, they're getting that internet money. They're, the EU, Brussels, is getting more money from Facebook and Google and Microsoft than they're getting from Greece and Turkey and Ireland. Well, and Greece has no money for Northern anybody. Sorry. What? Our, Greece doesn't have money for anybody. Yeah, Greece is right, that friend that's that the point, has crashed is that on supposed other to... friends' couches for the last five years. Right. Ireland gives all their money to church. So... <laughs> Well, What's you know, how else are they going to keep the snakes away? Well, they, well they, no, there you go. Well, they call this uh, the, uh, the new internet safety strategy. And there are not many details to be had. Uh, but the government says it will be charged against social media companies and communication service providers. That could mean firms like Facebook, Google, British Tele Telecom, Virgin Media, all of those. Media companies, telephone, uh, telephony companies, internet companies... And there's not really much more actual... There are not really that much many more actual details to be had outside of this is coming. Very vague. I don't know what this means. Does Miss May even know what it means? Probably not. She's attacking this problem from the outside. She's attacking this problem from why is there harm on the internet? Will it stop people from being harmed on the internet? You're not going to do that. And I... I People will harm people IRL if they dig with the internet. 
Mm-hmm. What? I said people will harm people IRL if you take away the internet. Yeah, I mean, and they already are. Just look at what some of the black block protesters are doing around the country. Anyway, uh, speaking of <laughs> speaking of technology companies that are targeted heavily by the EU, Google, of course, we mentioned uh, 30 seconds ago, 30 seconds from now, uh, they've been actually hurt by our own government. They've been charged with racketeering from Santa Clara uh, Superior Court. I think that's what it was. Let's hear it from our news department. Nobody on presents News to you. Mountain View, California. The most beloved, the most hated, and the most used search engine in the world, Google, is under fire this week for claims of racketeering, stealing trade secrets illegally from consultants, contractors, and vendors alike. Charged by the Santa Clara County Superior Court, Google has been charged with racketeering, that is, the marketing of a fraudulent service to solve a non-existent problem. Over the years, Google has collaborated with various contractors, consultants, vendors, and engineers and highly secretive projects, all protected by an MDA. After Google learned of their trade secrets, however, they seemingly lost interest and terminated the agreement, only to start up a similar venture at a later date owned wholly by Google. Google would even allegedly use this stolen technology to produce new patents that they own, giving zero credit to actual investors. While it's better to be a pirate than join the Navy, Google may have forgotten its own ethos, not be evil. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still turns and the truth marches on. That's why this has been News to You. Brought to you by the mother. While it's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. That's a good yep. one. That does not work in Somalia. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Uh, yeah, uh, so two things, two things on that. Google would solicit a party to share highly confidential trade secrets under a non-disclosure agreement, conduct negotiations with the party, then terminate negotiations with the party professing a lack of interest in the party's technology, followed by the unlawful use of the party's trade secrets in business. So that's interesting because that's literally how Google's interacted with most internet standards. It's also what most companies do to people who interview with them. Oh, yeah, hey, can sure. you uh, offer some criticism on our website? Oh, yeah, you just move this around. You know, it's really slow. You need to fix this. And then, then they do it and don't hire you. Google, when they <laughs> do it with a person. Us. We'll call you. Yeah, exactly. Google, when they do it with a person, is fine. But when they do it with a company, it's actually landed them in some hot water. There have been six lawsuits against Google, but five of them have resolved in the company's favor because of procedural issues. I don't even know what that really means. It means they kill a guy. Well, they're able to uh, get out on, like, some kind of fault. Like, all the facts weren't straight or somebody uh, disclosed evidence. Oh, mistrial. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Well, they were sued six times. This might be number seven. And this or Java, this is either number Java, six or number seven. Did this include the Java uh, court case? I don't know. I don't know. But it's really bad because I mean this is a lot of free advice if you think about it. It's a really good shady business tactic. Well, it's like how a lot of internet standards just work. Though, is a bunch of people from companies getting together and being like, "Hey, I've got this idea. That sounds cool." Yeah, but this isn't about standards. This is about proprietary technology. This guy who's yeah, suing them. Yeah, you can them, still have proprietary technology built on, on top of standards, though. 
The guy that's suing them created a new way of building. And that's all I know. It's a game-changing new building technology for construction. Hmm. And Google in 2010 struck a deal with him. Uh, and then, uh, what is it? Uh, they wanted to call it Project Genie. It was undertaken by their secretive Google X unit for experimental moon shoots. And then... Wait, did you say moon shoes? Moon shoot. They're moon bringing shots. back moon shoes? Moon shoes, yes. Moon the guy's shine. making moon shoes. Google moonshine. <laughs> Comes with shoes. Oh, there you go. Uh, but what happened was, uh, allegedly, Larry and Sergey tried to squeeze this guy out of the project and pretended to kill the project but still kept his technology. So then they respawn the project under a new name months later without this guy. And that's why he's suing them. Sounds right. Flux Factory is what it's called now. It's simply a reconstitution of Project Genie under a different name, and now Flux Factory is just called Flux. Headquartered in San Francisco, it sells building design software and markets itself as the first company launched by Google X. That software was written by somebody that Google invited over for a date and said, eh, I'm not interested, and then stole his intellectual property. That's why it's better to be a pirate than join the Navy. And the, where I got that line from was the Pirates of Silicon Valley, a made-for-TV movie that is now 18 years old. Mm. Yeah, well, the original story of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs before he came back. Well, on that note... It actually it ends with Steve Jobs asking Bill Gates for money, because Apple didn't have any money in the early 90s, and Microsoft had to bail out Apple. Hmm. Might have to happen again, though. <laughs> If Apple weren't the most profitable company in the world, it might have to happen again, but they're they do anymore. make their money on these bullshit phones that you have Apple's to Apple's no longer year. the most profitable company in the world. Oh, they're not? No, it's been Google for like the last year. Mm, what is that based off of? Uh, re uh, yearly Market revenue. cap? Yearly revenue. Uh, what mean, am I talking iPhones about? iPhones are 10% of the market. What do you expect? I, you know... Uh, Oh, no, that's from 2016. Oh, it's 2015. Why is this coming up first? Here we go. The 10 most profitable American companies. I'm just going to read number one. This is from Forbes. Fortune. Sorry, Fortune. Uh, 2017, June 7th. Number one, Apple. Okay. They changed then. Number two, J.P. Morgan. Number three, Berkshire Hathaway. Or Berkshire Hathaway. Number four, Wells Fargo, five, Alphabet. So it's not even Google, it's Alphabet, and they're number five. Uh, it's all that European regulation. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Google would be the most profitable if they didn't have to hand over half of their annual income to the EU. Yep. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, let's take a break and uh, talk about a wonderful, a wonderful service provided by a, a company that you might try to hack later, Pneumonium. Uh, where is it? I moved the break because I figured, you know, we, we need some kind of natural breath in the program uh, between the part of the show that stays the same every week and the new content piece of the show that we change up, uh, which I didn't really need to say out loud as I'm stalling for time. Anyway. Zebrans, <clears throat> do you live in New York City? Well, if you do, Pneumonium has a beautiful new product for you. It's called Where Am I? Your five-borough compass navigator to help you get anywhere from Staten Island to the Bronx. Simply go to www.whereami.nyc and enable location services on your mobile device to find the neighborhood borough in three closest subway stops to you, wherever you are. No ads, no tracking, just geospatial brilliance. That's Where Am I? Brought to you by Pneumonium. Pneumonium, reinventing media data. 
Okay. Tonight's episode is about DNS, the domain name system. Mm-hmm. And how do we start talking about it? the internet phone book, the phone book to the internet superhighway? How the yellow pages for the internet? How so, do we start talking about the system so that is responsible for all of us actually using the internet? At the highest level, it's a distributed key value uh, store. You have a client that knows a key, say it's google.com, and he wants to know the value, which uh, in the case of your web browser would be the IP address. So you, what you're actually doing is querying for an A record, uh, but uh, in the older days it would just be that you have just a domain name and it happened to just resolve to whatever. It didn't even have types. Because uh, in the, okay. er, the earliest days of DNS evolved from uh, when the internet was just a bunch of academics. It got, as it grew, it was uh, a lot harder to just remember this IP address is uh, MIT and this IP address is Berkeley. So it right. became... Uh, things like, uh, okay, th- there's actually like a uh, berkeley.edu and an mit.edu, and these were kept in host files, and these were just resolved to particular IP addresses. Then as the internet evolved and grew, it, there were certain things that, di- that uh, didn't necessarily have to be IP addresses. There were things that, that uh, so all of a sudden, uh, carrying around these host files became totally unmanageable. So the first DNS server that really came about was Bind, which okay. is a... Heard of Bind. Uh, it's a C program that just does a DNS server. It can also work as a recursive resolver, which would be that it just uh, queries back to a other DNS server and uh, uh, will give that response. But from there, many companies have created their own DNS servers and uh, uh, public resolvers and such. And I think uh, what, one of the important things to understand there is uh, the structure of how uh, well the components involved. Okay. Which would be... Uh, it starts at the low. Uh, well, you have your process that needs to resolve the query, so that's just got its own DNS library saying, "Go to my uh, what's called the local resolver," and that is a program. Uh, if you're on Linux uh, these days, you're probably using systemd resolvedy as your local resolver. And if, so, if your process does not have the name resolved in, in its own cache in memory, it'll move to the local resolver. It will first look in its cache, and then if it doesn't have it in the cache, it'll look at, at your Etsy host file. And if it's now, not, you presented an interesting problem, which is what happens if the record changes, but the cache hasn't? How does it know wh- how long is the cache? How long is a record so in the DNS cache? Every record has a TTL, which, t- as we said earlier, time to, time live. to live. So after that uh, is up, it'll go uh, to wherever it needs to go to refresh that, except for local resolvers. Uh, in the case of a local resolver, they'll just need, uh, next time you make a query, it'll have to go out and get it. Gotcha. And so... <clears throat> From the local resolver, if it doesn't have it in the Etsy hosts or the cache, it'll go to a public resolver. So uh, a good example is 8.8.8.8, Google's public resolver. Google's DNS, yeah. And what that is, is it's like a DNS server, except instead of actually storing IP addresses, it does have a local cache for them. Or I should say, instead of storing values for the DNS records, it does have a local cache for them. But then it goes to the registries to look up all the uh, public registrars. And the registrars, what they do is they host a domain name, and they look at uh, the do- domain name pointing to what particular DNS server. There's a whole other part of it that goes into looking up a particular TLD for it uh, that uh, is very complicated, uh, but it's basically there's a particular uh, registry just for these TLDs. And then from there, <clears throat> uh, from there, though, uh, on the registrar, it'll go to the particular DNS server. And that's how most public DNS works. You can also just host it, your own DNS server locally, 
point to that, but then you can only resolve uh, the uh, records that are in that DNS server. So now, if you did want to run a local DNS server, which I do for local web development, uh, other people do for various reasons, uh, is it a bad idea to use that as the primary resolver for generally connecting to the internet? Well, you're not using that as a resolver. You can put it in recursive mode, which will <clears throat> allow it to uh, resolve. Okay. But by default, it's just serving DNS records that you uh, define within it. Okay. I, I'm talking. Well, I'm talking about something like DNS Mask with a cube. DNS Mask is a resolver. Okay. It is not a and, server. But it allows you to connect an upstream DNS server. Yes, which is a resolver. So, I mean, DNS Mask is a resolver. <clears throat> gotcha. Like, um, basically, like, bind, PDNS... Uh, those those are the two ones that you can host yourself. Uh, there is certain things in the works, uh, certain companies that I know of that I perhaps work at that uh, uh, is developing a host yourself uh, system as well. But it's uh, definitely geared towards enterprise. It's not something you can run on like a small local machine. Right, host yourself with your own rack server. Yeah, or in the cloud. Right. Um, let's see. What about DNS master keys? So that. Is an interesting thing. That is something that's not actually part of DNS so much as is it is. Is that DNSSEC? That is DNSSEC. Okay, let me... That, all right. Let me... Well, hold on. We'll take a step back. Uh, what, what, what are DNS root servers? DNS root servers are your actual, like, uh, DNS servers, uh, whether they be... <clears throat> well, so there's DNS root servers in the sense that uh, the roots of TLDs, which are the ones that just resolve uh, for COM, uh, IO, org, all those... But then there's also, uh, you can use root server as the topic of this is where you actually go to get values for a particular domain name that you're looking up. And gotcha. Th- that can be- well, I meant, well, <clears throat> the, the root, let's say the, the root servers are, well, there are root servers that are at the very bottom of the DNS hierarchy, right? Yep. <clears throat> and how many of them are there? Uh, they're, well, it depends. Are we talking root in the context of just the, the books responsible for resolving TLDs? Or are we talking about root in the context that it is actually... Usually called an authoritative DNS server, but you don't necessarily have to be an authoritative DNS server. Uh, why don't we? Well, what is what is an authoritative DNS server? It is a pr- uh, primary DNS server, as in this is where you actually host your zones. Which a zone is the encompassing thing for a domain. And like, what goes into a zone? A zone is like the top level part of the domain. So you have like uh, you use Google.com again. So Google.com is the zone name. And then you have a bunch of subsequent records of, like, you can have an A record for Google.com. You can have an a, uh, C name that, that, uh, then for www.google.com that points to Google.com and so on. Basically, the zone just says this domain name exists, and here is the last update. It's used basically for versioning of a particular zone itself, and it also has a bunch of things for you can do a uh, replication of DNS servers uh, through I, uh, IXFR or AXFR. AXFR. And what do those stand a- for? Um, AXFR is basically all transfer, and IXFR is incremental transfer. So in all, okay. you just get the state of a zone, which works great if you're using a smaller zone. But if you have really, really large zones, which some companies can have millions of records in a single zone. When, when would you need to segment zones? Like, why wouldn't you put everything into one zone? Well, it's... For a domain. For a domain, you have to. Um, you can use like linked records, but that gets very hairy. But normally, you would just put everything for a singular domain name in a single zone, 
it's just a matter of then if you want just uh, for the sake of like redundancy, which is actually a big thing ever since the Dyn outage, you can have your Dyn server as a primary because it's already set up, and then you can set up a different provider's DNS server as a secondary, which does these uh, periodic IXFRs or AXFRs based on you update the zone, it'll send what's called a notify to the, the secondary saying, okay, you need to do a, uh, a transfer of some sort. So the secondary will then say, uh, it's totally up to the secondary say, I either want IXFR or AXFR. If it does go for the IXFR, though, it has to have the ability to fall back to AXFR. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, okay, so that's an authoritative DNS server. Mm-hmm. How many of those are there? Uh, there's a bunch. Uh, basically, anybody who can spin up a DNS server could make it their authoritative uh, DNS server. It's okay, just, and that's why that's different from a root DNS server, which is the root server for a given TLD. Yes, okay. Can multiple TLDs have the same root IP address? They really shouldn't. I they really shouldn't? I is that just for load balancing? Or? No, I don't know any that do. Well, I mean, if and we talk about this TLD expansion... The one thing I will say, though, is there's, keeps no, going on. there's no RFC saying that they can't. Well, my question is this. With the, the TLD, top-level domain expansion, which was like five or six TLDs plus country codes, and now is in the last year, is, is, uh, there's any sort of word that you can put at the end of a domain name these days. Uh, do all of those TLDs, uh, like I have Jew.money, hack that website. Uh, yeah, fight me. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is it? Uh, does that, does the, is there a server that just resolves .money? Uh, yeah. And, and there's a completely separate server that resolves the five big, domains so the, and dot the root, accounts. The root is basically your registries, which then point to the registrars, which will point to which actual DNS ser- server for the public resolver to query. The root server points to the registry. It is technically a registry, but the registries are the collective of Well, those. like, if I, if I <clears throat> go on to hover.com, mm-hmm. not plugging them but i don't like GoDaddy. uh if you want if you go on a hover.com you buy a domain what so happens that's a registrar right the registrar, that is a registrar will then update the registry though which are the root dns servers saying that there's a new dot com or a new so the registrar has servers yes it talks to the root servers which in the list of root servers how is that distributed that is just per tld that it's up to that the organization responsible for that tld to host uh, servers for it. But how are they communicated through, like, ICANN, or how are they... Well, so, you been, it's a, you, all, all DNS is either over UDP or TCP, technically both in a lot of cases. So what I'm, what I'm saying is... It's if mostly you have, UDP on the internet. Right, if you have a... Uh, if you if you... If the registrar talks to the root domain, or the root servers for the domain... How does it know where to find the root servers? Does it just has a list? How, where does it get the list from? Yeah, root servers are publicly known uh, IPs. How? How often are they updated? How are they determined? Whenever there's a new TLD, there needs to be a new root server. Gotcha. And so that's it's really just the registrars that care about that, though. And then the registrars will say, hey, there's these new ones. And then the public resolver can go to the list of registrars or the, list, uh, or the registries to get, hey, this is... This domain happens to use these NS uh, records, which the NS records point to the particular name servers you're using. All right, so we have so we've gone from the domain registrar to the root servers, mm-hmm. which say this person. And the, the registrar says, "Hey, this guy bought this domain. This person, yep, yep. don't want to be patriarchal, bought this domain." Uh, and then that 
and then and then and then, so, and then the root servers say okay, and then the registrar says now you own it. Set up some DNS. Where is this website going to live? And then you well, uh, not where the website's going to live. It's going to be where where is your root? root uh, sorry, your authoritative DNS server. So that well, well, I was well, I was going to the the fact that most people get NS records, which mm-hmm. those are the authoritative DNS yes. servers. Yes, most people get those with their hosting. You can, you don't have to though. A lot of okay. a lot of registrars do run authoritative DNS, but you can also use something like NS1, DigitalOcean, Dyn. That do what? How would they be different from the NS server that or the uh, the name server that comes from? With it's my mostly company. quality and features. Like you can have certain ones that uh, take a look at like uh, latency, GOIP routing. Uh, how do uh, they give you a dashboard? Server health. Uh, a dashboard or something? Uh, as somebody who works at a DNS company, uh, I'll say yes, there is a dashboard, but most that would be for the paid version, I would assume. No, it's just that most customers happen to just use the API much more than the dashboard. Oh, yeah. So if I wanted to put pneumonium dot com uh, on DigitalOcean's name servers, I could do that. Yep. And I just go to my registrar, change the NS records to point to them, and then I assume I talk to DigitalOcean and say, "Hey, I want to move my records for my domain to you guys." Oh, you just have to set up the records in DigitalOcean. So say, uh, let's say API request. Well, and I would assume that if you, I mean, never mind, go on. But basically, when when you create the zone in DigitalOcean, they'll give you a bunch of NS records. Those NS records are the name servers you put in the registrar for it to say, hey, these are the DNS servers that are functioning as authoritative DNS for this domain. And I don't have to actually have any hosting with them. I could just use their DNS servers. Uh, because they don't charge money, I don't know about that. That's why I said most people typically get name server addresses from their hosting. Yeah, from their, either their hosting, which you can host on whatever website, or if you, a lot of places that have higher amounts of traffic will go to a specific DNS company because they have better features. Well, like, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, but like, if you're hosting on AWS, mm-hmm. does that does Amazon run authoritative name servers, or do yeah, you have to point it somewhere? Yeah, uh, they've Route 53. Okay, so then yeah, basically comes with hosting. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, uh, all right. So we buy a domain. Registrar talks to the root servers. Root servers return a response to the registrar. Registrar asks you for DNS info. You procure name servers, which you get either independently or through a hosting company, and you add those in. And then you also need you also need an A record to point to where your domain is going to go. A for address. Well, you don't need an A record, but if you're building a website, you do. What else? What, what? Give me an instance of something that doesn't need an A record but does need other records. So you can use a cert record, often in particular uh, secure uh, protocols. Uh, what is cert? Cert is a. It's similar to a text record, where it's just you have a key that resolves to text. But the idea of a cert is it resolves to a particular like uh, RSA key or something, like a oh, it, the pub key, like a certificate, right? Yeah, the pub key. Uh, now you say. I, <clears throat> also remember. Oh, sorry, go on. So also, Google now requires a CAA record on every website uh, for secu- uh, HTTPS. Wasn't that a, an agency? Wasn't that a modeling agency? No, CAA is uh, Certificate Authority. Um, authority. Archive. It's the so it's it's Certificate it, it points to Authority. authority. It, yeah, it's the Creative Artists Agency. Sure. But this is just the point. See, like, like, say you get your uh, cert- uh, HTTPS certificates from Let's Encrypt. So your CAA right. record will point to a Let's Encrypt server. Gotcha. But why if it generates it on your computer? It doesn't generate it on, on your computer. You pull it 
to whatever computer you're running the Let's Encrypt stuff on. Oh, really? Yeah, it's generated on the server. On their server? Yeah. Not your server? Their server. That makes a lot of sense. You could... I thought it generated it on your server, but then how would it be... It's not publicly secure, accepted. Because then. that would be... Right. Then I would just be self-signed. Yeah. Uh, makes sense. Okay. Um, let's see. Now, about text records, you mentioned something to me the other day, that text records are insecure without something. Without uh, basically doing an SSEC, where you have uh, this idea of an RRSIG, which just says that this particular record resource is uh, signed. Otherwise, right. uh, text records can be spoofed, and that's just usually data that you're pulling into your application for some reason. Well, can't any record without DNSSEC be spoofed, technically? Uh, yes, uh, but that it, it's a it's a bit of work because of the whole construct. But if you are like running, say, a local DNS server, and somebody happens to be uh, ha- happen to have gotten into your local network, and then tries to spoof it, they probably can. So that's why gotcha. that's why something like DNS uh, uh, sec helps. Uh, it's basically a way to ensure the identity of the person who set up that uh, particular record. Just like SSL confirms the identity of the person who set up the website. Yeah. Good. Uh, we'll talk more about DNSSEC in a second. Eh. Uh, other other uh, types of records, MX for Mail Exchanger, uh, those take a value and have a priority. So you can have multiple NX records for a specific domain that have go to different servers, ba- servers based on their priority and if the resolving server is up. Um, all of these records need a time to live. How do you choose what value to put in that field? So it's rather arbitrary. Uh I know the, some systems have defaults. The lower the meaner is the way I'll put it. Because uh, it requires more just checking and rechecking? Yeah. But then it allows you to change the the, resu- the response of the queries quicker. Yeah, which is generally why you want to do the math to figure if you have a TTL of... Uh, depending on how uh, quickly you're going to be changing the record. So like an SRV record, you might want to have it lower than your A record. But... Uh, Really, the only record that you want to be changing a lot potentially would be a like a TXT record, and that seems kind of extreme. Why would you want to change that a lot? Uh, because if you are updating the data in there, because TXT is really just there to say, "Hey, I've got this string I want to store." Right. That makes okay. That makes sense. Um. Okay. Let's see. Uh. So we talked. We talked about TTLs. Uh. Oh, CNAME, canonical name. That's a way to refer to multiple addresses like subdomains that point to a specific domain. Yep. And typically it points to an A record on your server, but technically CNAMEs can go anywhere. Uh, not entirely true. It has to be within the zone. Does it? Unless you're Microsoft. Microsoft's DNS server does allow out, out of zone. <laughs> but I, I think I remember somewhere that it might be Windows server. Windows servers, I mean, yeah. that's everywhere. But, uh, yeah, uh, Windows is the only one. Uh, it's like Active Directory, I think it's what it's called. And that's the only one where it will resolve to whatever you put in a particular zone. But That's not uh, that's not DNS. That's just Active Directory. Uh, no, they got their DNS server. Like uh, Windows Server has its own yeah. DNS server. It's just called DNS. Oh, is it? But anyway, yeah, yeah uh, Windows does not require uh, the domain to be in the correct zone, basically. Gotcha. So I can't see name mail.pneumonium.com to mail.google.com or whatever. No, in fact, that sounds like something you should really MX. Well, if I wanted to check the mail on the website, not if I wanted to send mail to mail at pneumonium.com. Because you wouldn't want to send mail to mail at pneumonium. You'd want to send mail to pneumonium.com. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, why do some people have a separate mail domain? 
uh, preference, ease, ease okay. of setup, maybe. Okay. Uh, let's see. Other records. Uh, MXNS name server, text, search, CAA, SRV, SOA. SOA is... That is... Uh, SOA is the record that you points to his own. What does it stand for? Uh, I don't remember what it actually stands for. It's usually just... Start of Authority. Yeah. So that's just the uh, overarching zone record. So that says, I have this uh, uh, zone, and it was created this time and has these permissions. And then basically you have this particular um, uh, serial number that just says this was uh, the last... It's usually just uh, a bunch together date of the last time you updated the zone. Gotcha. Um, DS... Yeah, that's a uh, a particular uh, DNSSEC record, which uh, uh, the DS record is for um, blanking on it, blanking on it. Uh, they are supposed to be on the parent side of delegation, and um, I believe uh, I'm trying to remember uh, delegation signer. Um, I think this it's through a DS record you create an RR sig. Gotcha. Yeah. And RR sig is resource record signature. Yep. Record resource signature. Yep. Uh, resource record signature, which, oh, okay. uh, saying that this second. particular record is signed. So each record would have an RR sig. Gotcha. And NSEC NSEC is another DNSSEC key, uh, type of record, I assume. Yeah, that's basically uh, an NS record. Uh, NS record for which uh, DNSSEC ah, is secure NS uh, for uh, doing the signing. Okay, and link. Uh, well, there's also DNS key, which you skipped over, which is the important Oh, one. DNS key, I'm sorry. That is the uh, key for uh, that, it, that is generated. There's an overarching parent DNS key that has to be incredibly secure for each DNS server. Mm-hmm. And then through that, it generates these DNS key records, which are uh, like a per... Uh, it can be per zone or per user. There's uh, the, the RFC is actually pretty loose on that. But you can then... That's the one used to create these actual signings. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, and link? Uh, link is a way to link uh, two zones. Ah, uh, I gotcha. Yep. Um, I think we talked about all the records. There's uh, some male DNS records, like uh, DKIM and SPF. We talked about in an earlier episode about email. Uh, and that is domain keys information management? Mm-hmm. Those and then S. Those are too often used publicly, though, as far as I'm aware. Uh, you know, they are an option. I know you're not you're not going to like this. They are an option on uh, cPanel when you create a new site and has a checkbox. Well, no, they, they are valid records. I'm just saying they're not ones that uh, in the public facing internet you're going to use. I, I believe. Right. Well, I mean, how many of these are you honestly going to use anyway? You could get a website up with just an uh, NS and, and a DNA. I, I know some very large websites that use almost all of these. Well, very, very large websites, yes, but your standard run-of-the-mill website might not, yeah, unless it really like wants to be secure. A name, C name, MX, NS, and if you're going to be doing multiple services in your backend, SRV. And, okay. of course, SOA. Everything needs a SOA. Uh, what should that record be? Which one? The SOA. That is generated by the DNS server to say... For this domain name, it has a SOA that it has a bunch of serial numbers. Uh, some of them point, and then like uh, you have like the email address of the owner of the zone, and uh, things of that nature. But uh, basically, there's a series of numbers. Some of them are for like types, how many uh, uh, records are in that zone, 
and uh, like uh, the serial, like I mentioned, for uh, transfer use. Gotcha. Um, okay, let's move on and talk about query types. You talked about IXFR and AXFR, mm-hmm. and those stand for what again? The incremental... Incremental transfer and all transfer. Oh, XFR transfer, gotcha. Uh, okay, and then there's any? That's just pick a random record. And chaos, which is random? Which is just uh, basically uh, resolve star. <laughs> what, what would you... Why would you need any or chaos? Uh, both usually for performance testing, and usually they're not supported by most DNS servers because of how evil they can be. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, anything else to add? Uh, not particularly on, on the uh, query types. They're pretty straightforward. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's ha- have some fun and talk about some DNS exploits. It's always cool. Um, and where did that have go? This is what happens when I open too many pages on the air. Here we go. Uh, there, there are, of course, attacks that you can perform on the DNS, on the, on the domain name system, on a specific, uh, server, on a domain name server, or, uh, on the internet at, uh, as a whole. What is, one of them is called cache poisoning. What is cache poisoning? Uh, basically, uh, if you have access to the, uh, DNS server's cache, you can, you can say, hey, here's this, uh, wrong value for that, uh, particular, uh, record. And then that sends it to a attacker's computer that probably has exploits and ransomware well, on it. no, it's usually like, hey, point these people at the wrong, uh, IP address. Which could have ransomware and other stuff on sure. it. Sure. Uh, how do you find... How do you find out if your DNS cache has been poisoned? Um, well, generally, you should have intrusion detection in general to see if somebody's actually in your machine, because that's really the only way that you will be able to poison the cache. Okay. But after that, uh, you could see... I mean, if you are running a DNS server on AWS, this might be easier, because you can do a, um, uh, an exploit in KSM, which is a kernel same-page memory uh, merge. Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, right. I remember this from an earlier episode. And with that, uh, you could actually say, hey, in this other VM, and this is like a real, like, you have to really try to randomly guess and get lucky, but you find the DNS server that happens to be running on a uh, public uh, cloud, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, I found the address space that the cache exists in, let me change this value. So that's probably the easiest way without access to the other machine. Wow. Yeah. Um, So after the cache has been poisoned, what happens? Uh, then it'll resolve incorrectly. Uh, and until it's found out, I guess. Yep. Or, or what about the TTL for the domain? Well, that could happen too, actually, yeah. Yeah, TTL would work. I mean, I would assume if you're editing the, the zone info... You could uh, also change it to like a... Increase the TTL yeah, to yeah. an extreme, exceedingly long. Yeah. Um, is there a way to set it to like a negative one to never TTL? No, there should always be a TTL. Okay. Yeah. Um... Another type of attack to do uh, on DNS is denial of service. And there's a way that you can amplify denial of service via the domain name system. Hmm. How do you do that? Sorry, uh, phrase that again. I uh, got lost a little. Sure. Uh, How do you you amplify a denial of service attack using DNS? Oh, well, you can have something like you set a, uh, uh, you are sending a bunch of queries to a public resolver for something at a particular actual DNS server, and you can be sending it to multiple public resolvers. 
Is your goal? What's your goal with that? Is it to take down the resolver? Or is it to t- uh, mess up requests to the that main would, website? That would more likely actually be hitting the uh, DNS server itself, so that way the website would be down. Uh, so you have like a you'd need a lot of public resolvers. So this could just be like, hey, I don't, I can send, um, and also like uh, it uh, works really well if you have a low TTL on records. Then all of a sudden it can just be like, hey, I'm gonna send a bunch of queries to the public resolvers, as well as query that DNS server directly. And then all of a sudden you uh, are hammering away the DNS server hosting that record. Gotcha. And then once the DNS server that hosts the record for your website goes down, your website is essentially down. Yep. Unless, of course, you have it hacked in your host's file. Well, no, that doesn't really mean it's up. It, what would mean it's up is you also have... Well, I mean, if they just if they took down the domain name, then if you had the IP address already stored, then you'd be fine. Well, you as an individual, but your website would, would be down publicly. Yeah, it would. So, uh, but there is around floating that, around some some host some apocalyptic host file for when the internet finally does break. I'm not kidding. Oh, I know. Uh, but an easier way around that though is also just running redundant DNS servers. <laughs> okay, that is it. Yeah. Uh, but um, there are two types of di- uh, distributed. That's the second D. Uh, distributed denial of service attacks. Uh, one of them uh, attacks the DNS servers, like we just talked about. But there's another one, um, uh, distributed denial of service attacking DNS servers. Is that a 3D OS? Uh, that's what happened to Dyne, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the Mirai botnet uh, attacked them. What does Dyne do, actually? They are uh, basically a, uh, they actually take the bind server, the oldest DNS server out there, modify it so it's got a MySQL backend. And that's it in a nutshell. But, oh. Okay. Why is that helpful? Uh, so th- they just have that, oh, we were here first advantage there. Where, uh, ah. so D- Dyn is actually, uh, th- they ha- also have a lot of internet, basically. <laughs> that is the other thing they have, is internet. <laughs> but, what do you mean they have a lot of internet? Uh, they have, uh... They have a lot of actual public IP space that uh, through oh, BGP okay. announcements, blah blah blah, that stuff. So they're gotcha. like re- so they're like dot uh, com domain name real estate agents. Uh, sorta. I-, I guess you could look at it that way. Um, I'm trying to figure out exactly where these amplified uh, DDoS attacks are different from just regular D- uh, DDoS attacks. Um, it's, it's how you can end up sending like one packet from your computer to a botnet and then the botnet ends up taking a site down because it's been magnified. Well, yeah, it'll each time be like, oh, hey, there's this request. I don't have this. I need to send it forward and it'll just bounce around until it actually, uh, ends up hitting the actual DNS server with a uh, bunch of queries. And that's different from just directly attacking the DNS servers with queries. Yep. Interesting. Um... Okay, and how? And so we can defend against these types of attacks. Will DNSSEC actually help defend against this stuff? No, DNSSEC just uh, it provides identity. Uh, there is so a lot you of, need some kind of firewall then to prevent that. Uh, firewall is like the most basic way to prevent it. Although I'd say most DNS companies are using firewalls uh, uh, to defend. But in addition to that, there are things like uh, spe- specific NICs that will actually. Uh, uh, have like an onboard CPU to detect uh, malicious packets. There's really? Also, software out there to do the same. And with this, it'll do things like all of a sudden, just with IP tables, uh, just send drop packets to that particular IP, a malicious IP address. 
it can also do things like um, I know plenty of companies that will just say BGP uh, take away the BGP announcement for a particular IP address and then move that IP address to a much larger server. And, and when you take away the announcement to the border gateway protocol for an IP address, what happens? It, the traffic just no longer goes to that particular uh, DNS server, and now it's going to a new server with that same IP address that you uh, uh, now announced it on. And that can, uh, but if that also fails, then worst case, you just try to uh, kind of offload a bunch of, of uh, internet traffic to like a tier one internet provider. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, okay. And now let's talk about DNSSEC. What what exactly does it do differently from regular DNS other than just have more keys to verify your identity? Is that it? That That is pretty much it. The RRSIG uh, is the one that will actually say, for a particular record, uh, this is verified that it's uh, owned and operated by so-and-so. Okay. And then the uh, the DNS key record, I guess, has their public key? Yep. Okay. Uh, NSEC is a secure name server. Mm-hmm. I would assume it would have those. And what really makes it secure? Uh, this is if being it's just able UDP to say packets that, like, bouncing around. Instead of it being like you accidentally go to some rogue DNS server that's uh, resolving google.com to some random IP address in Russia, uh, this is actually saying that, uh, hey, this Google IP address is uh, definitely verified to be what, uh, controlled by Google. That makes sense. But I guess my question is, what is re- the real difference between an NSEC and an NS when both of them can actually just be the same server? Uh, it's just a matter – they can be the same server. It's a matter of saying that uh, the NSEC one happens to be the uh, server responsible for doing the signing. Oh, signing. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and then there was uh, something called Secure DNS that I remember hearing quickly, briefly, but I think it, it went away. Yeah, that's not really used uh, publicly. It, but it is a thing, right? It's different from DNSSEC? I think that's more of a marketing thing than anything. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, anything else to add about uh, DNSSEC? Uh, not particularly. Uh, I will say from experience, it's a tricky thing. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, it's a lot to deal with behind the scenes, and I'd say beyond uh, anything, that root uh, key that each uh, DNS provider has to keep secure it's tremendously difficult to come up with a way that it is actually secure. Like uh, Cloudflare has this interesting talk on it, and it's all about how they use uh, a UEFI uh, uh, boot mount. UEFI. Yeah, UEFI mount that then uh, writes the key at boot time and has it read-only there. And it's only read-only huh. on uh, these, uh, these particular servers. And the only way to ever access the key as a human is with a physical key. Interesting. Yep. What is a key signing key? That is that key. Oh. Yep. Okay. There was a key signing key rollover originally scheduled to take place on October 11th, and it's been postponed. Yep. What is that? Oh, that's the root key signing key, too. So that's like the .com and .org. Uh, oh, and they were just going to change them up because yep. it's probably better to do that every once in a while? Yep. Okay. Uh it was a big deal, and it was postponed. Why? Because uh, some uh, some clients uh, have implemented DNSSEC in early days when it was like hard coded, being like, "Oh, who's going to actually use this? Let's hard code the value," kind of things. Ah, uh, and so they just weren't ready. Yep. 
But weren't these announced like months before giving them a chance to get ready? Yep. Great. Uh, okay, there is a trust anchor as part of DNSSEC. What uh, is a trust anchor? I don't know. I've never heard that term, actually. It's a key or a hash of a key that corresponds to the root zone of the KSK, the key signing key. Oh, this is for offline signing. Okay, so I know what this is. That, so one thing with DNSSEC that hasn't been mentioned is there's online signing and offline signing. Okay, what's the difference? Online signing means that you'll recycle the, uh, the uh, signatures a lot. But offline signing is just you do one signature and that's it. And this is to say that here's this hash to just get the update to make sure it's still valid on the offlining mode. Gotcha. Uh, so the trust anchor is what? It's just this hash it that does says, one. hey, this thing's still valid. Okay. Yeah. Whenever a KSK rollover occurs, that's a new acronym, validators need to update their trust anchors to include the new key. The design of DNSSEC includes a mechanism commonly referred to as RFC 5011, whereby validators can automatically update their trust anchors. Because there has never been an operational root KSK rollover, RFC 5011 has never been tested in production. Hmm. Yep. Well, that makes it's a good thing they're postponing it. First time for everything. Hmm. Yeah. Um, do we have KSM, KSKs? KKKs? Whoa, buddy. Whoa. Hey, oh, hey, oh, hey. You, you, what was that? Sorry? You with the shoes and the shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. Watch it. Anyway. He <laughs> uh, means you're not wearing pants. <laughs> oh, I, no, I'm wearing, I've definitely got pants. I, I did not, but that also... Uh, one thing that I did want to touch on uh, while we were talking about attacks and DNSSEC uh, slash security is uh, this thing called Metasploit. It's been around for probably 10 years or close to 10 years now. And it's the world's most used penetration testing framework. It's also very much used by attackers. Does Pornhub use it? <laughs> no, they should have, though. Would have, it would have... It would have highlighted oh. some of the uh, exploitable areas on their website. I'm I would assume that, that they have plenty of penetration testing already. The idea behind Metasploit is that it includes a bunch of commonly used exploits that are rolled up into one big thing. Mm-hmm. But it's marketed, marketed to white hats as a penetration testing tool, uh, but it is also used by black hats as an exploitive tool. Mm-hmm. Uh Let's see. Let's look at their latest pull requests. Fi- fix missing setup method in post modules. That's not exciting. Uh, Metasploit wrap-up. What's hot fall is finally here. While the weather may be getting cooler, things are hot in Metasploit land. Pumpkin Spice some- is back. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We've had some fun modules land recently in our expanding arsenal of code execution by design attacks. Interesting. Uh, the new Metasploit.com, this is just from this week. Cool. Metasploit 5 Robust. Uh, be a busy 2018 for the team here at Metasploit. Hmm. Okay. You've been using the version 4 for over six years. Sounds like, uh, CentOS. Um, exploit modules, five new exploit modules. Check this out. Deny all web application firewall remote code execution. Uh, that's got a, geez, a deny all remote code execution. Oof. Uh, supervisor XML RPC authenticated remote code execution. No JS debugger command injection. <laughs> you want to look at that one? Yeah, kind of. 
Uh, okay. Also, there's QMail SMTP bash environment variable injection. Disk pulse enterprise get buffer overflow. I think the Node.js one is the best one of the list. Um, this module uses the evaluate request type of the Node.js V8 debugger protocol to evaluate arbitrary JavaScript and call out to other system commands. This port, default 5858, is not exposed non-locally in default configurations, but may be exposed either intentionally or via a misconfiguration. Uh, this is just noobs doing noob stuff. How do you intentionally expose this port? Being a noob. You have to go out of your way to do that. No, you don't. Source code. Oh, they're on GitHub. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. What is this written in? Uh, uh, def. Is that Ruby? Uh, I, without looking at it, I put my money on Python, but let me take a look. Ah, uh, it it's is probably Ruby. Python. Mm. Oh, it is Ruby. Yeah. Good. Um, I don't know what this... I'm not going to read code on the air. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, I have before, but we've learned. That's why I'm not going to do it right now. Anyway. Death, uh, so exploit, go- uh, parentheses, A, comma, B, and... You know, I mean, that's what makes doing these technology shows really hard, is that you, you know, it's very visual. You can't... There are blind software developers. My heart goes out to them. I don't know how they get around, but they do. Um, okay. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our DNS discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Anything else to add? No, not really. Tyler, do you have any questions? You're pretty quiet. It's cool. We're good. Okay. It's all good. Well, let's end tonight on one article that uh, is a real sign of the times. It's where the customer isn't always right at a restaurant. There's a restaurant in New York that was around for 10 years, and they noticed that in 2014, stories from then... Uh, that they they actually had a lower quality of satisfaction, lower reviews than they did in 2004, and they and people say it's the restaurant. In fact, it's the people. Let's take a look at this. In 2004, this is how people edit or sorry edit. This is how people order at a restaurant. Uh, customers walk in, they get seated and are given menus. Out of 45 customers, three request to be seated elsewhere. Customers, on average, spend eight minutes before closing the menu to show their server they're ready to order. Waiters show up almost instantly. Appetizers are fired within six minutes. Obviously, the more complex items take longer. Out of 45 customers, two sent items back. Remember that. 45, three requests to be seated elsewhere, two sent items back. Waiters keep an eye out for their tables so they can respond quickly if the customer needs something. After the guests are done, the check delivered, and within five minutes, they leave. Average time from start to finish, one hour, five minutes. Let's move, let's move to 2014, the age of the smartphone, and YouTube didn't even exist in 2004. Customers walk in. Customers get seated and, a given men- and are given menus. Out of 45 customers, 18 request to be seated elsewhere instead of three. Before even opening the menu, they take out their phones. Some are taking photos, while others are simply doing something else on their phone. Sorry, we have no idea what they're doing. We're not going to monitor their Wi-Fi activity. You should. We're getting this granular. You should sell Uh, it. Yeah, exactly. Seven of the 45 customers had waiters come over right away. They showed them something on the phone and spent an average of five minutes of the waiter's time. The customer showed the waiter something on their phone that they were looking at before the waiter got there. What this? 
Exactly. No, they didn't even say that. It was like, hey, check this YouTube video out. And the waiter's like, okay, well, what do you, what do you want to eat? No, hold on a minute. And given this is recent footage... Well, hold on. Given this is recent footage, we asked the waiters about this, and they explained that those customers had a problem connecting to the Wi-Fi, and then they demanded the waiters try to help them. Oh, wow. Finally, the waiters are walking over to the table to see what the customers would like to order. The majority have not even opened the menu. Customer opens the menu, places their hands, holding their phones on top of it, and continue doing whatever on their phone. So then it looks like they're paying attention when they're not. The waiter returns to see if they are ready to order or have any questions. The customer asks for more time. This didn't happen in 2004. Finally, they are ready to order. Total average time from when the customer was seated until they placed their order, 21 minutes. Food starts getting delivered within six minutes. Obviously, the more complex items take longer. 26 out of the 45 customers spend an average of three minutes taking photos of the food. Oh, my God. 14 out of 45 customers take pictures of each other with the food, uh, which takes another four minutes as they must review and sometimes retake the photo. Excuse me. Is this like an avocado toast restaurant? It is now. Of course. Nine, nine out of 45 customers sent their food back to reheat because they'd spent so much time taking selfies it got cold. <laughs> 27 out of the 45 customers asked their waiter to take a group photo. 14 of those requested the waiter retake the photo because they weren't pleased with the first one. On average, this entire process between the chit-chatting and reviewing the photo taken added another five minutes and obviously caused the waiter to not to be able to take care of other tables he or she was serving. Given in most cases that the customers are constantly busy on their phones, it took an average of 20 minutes more from when they were done eating until they requested a check. Furthermore, once the check was delivered, it took 15 minutes longer than 10 years ago for them to pay and leave. Eight out of 45 customers bumped into other customers in, or in one case a waiter because they were texting while walking. Average time from start to finish, one hour, 55 minutes. Same restaurant, same food, 10 years, it was probably not the same food, it's 10 years, but basically the same food. 10 years on, smartphones are ruining humanity. And, and on so, that note... And on that note... <laughs> It's time to end. So, Christian, do you, do you approve of this week's poll request? Looks good to me. Tyler, how about you? I do. And you know, I always keep forgetting to ask our wonderful studio audience, Hey, guys! How are you? Yes, it sounds like you approve. Very good. Well, then, let's all hit merge. And we'll see you next week right here on Poll Request. This has been the Pneumonium Production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. This week's theme music provided by Volpec. Visit them at V-U-L-F-E-E-C-K dot com.